Okay, we're going to go with the mic. There we go. So, my privilege this morning to bring the message to you. And um, I'm filling in for Pastor Mike. He is at the beach with Kerry and the, the girls and having a little mini vacation, a well-earned time of rest. And you could pray for him that they really would get some refreshment and have um, just some really great family time. My family, Kathy's and my family with the kids and uh, grandkids are really spread quite widely across the, we got some in the US, some in Scotland, and so it's hard for us to get together. Um, do I keep going with this? There we go, anyway. Um, and um, it is quite hard for us to get together sometimes, but when we do get together, we have lots of fun. It's really a great time. And um, we, it can get quite silly sometimes. Uh, can you hear me okay? Do I need this? Okay, I'll keep going with the mic for now. Um, and one of the things we, we end up doing sometimes, we've got lots of funny senses of humor in our family, is that we'll start quoting our favorite movie lines. And um, I don't know if you guys ever do that, but we, we interject these one-liners into inopportune and opportune times in the conversation sometimes. And one of our favorite movies to do that with, it's really a veritable bonanza of golden quote nuggets, is The Emperor's New Groove. I don't know if you know that movie. It's an old Disney classic. And it's about this very egotistical emperor named Cusco. And um, he is uh, trying to steal the land from this poor peasant named Pacha. And he gets turned into a llama. And you can tell how silly this movie is. And um, throughout the movie, he is trying to, he's going through all these character lessons that he has to learn before he can become human again. And during the movie, he will often, um, he will often stop the movie itself and he will point to himself and try and get the audience on his side. And he will say, don't root for the peasant, root for me. And he does that several times. It's pretty silly. And um, that technique, when someone in a, in a movie or a play talks to the audience directly, is called breaking the fourth wall. I don't know if you've heard of that before. It's breaking that wall, the imaginary wall between the actors and the people watching it. And in our passage today, Jesus does that very thing. He breaks the fourth wall and he says some amazing, wonderful things that give us insight into his very heart. And there's so much in this passage, it's so rich and so deep, that I really encourage you guys to study it yourself. And I'm going to do my best to cover it this morning, and I just pray it will be a great blessing to you as we look at it together. Thank you so much, Emerson, for reading that this morning. That was great. Before we start, though, um, into the passage, I want to talk very quickly about the big picture and how this passage fits into not only the, con the immediate context of Matthew, as we've been going through Matthew, but also the overall unfolding of God's plan that started in Genesis with the problem of sin and God is now unveiling his plan of how to take care of that problem and restore mankind into relationship with himself. And Pastor Mike talked about that a little bit last week where um, it started really with Abraham and God's call to Abraham, the promise that through Abraham all nations of the world would be blessed. And then we see how Moses and the law come into play and God re redeems the Israelites out of Egypt and basically gives them a mission that as his chosen people, they are supposed to display his glory to the nations. They are supposed to be a light for the Gentiles. And that continues on all the way up to where we've seen that we've been reading in Matthew. And as you look back over the Old Testament and you see how Israel has been doing and how they did with that, if I was to grade them, 
I think I would give them a that. And uh, unfortunately, it's an F plus because there's a couple of times when they do a few okay things. But generally, they don't do a very good job. No, don't know if you guys remember the parable of the tenants. It's coming up in Matthew in a number of months. We'll go through it. But where um, it's a picture of a landowner who wants to get to harvest from his property. And he sent people over and over again to get it. And the, the tenants there mistreat the people he sends. And it's a picture of God really um, calling Israel to account. And he sent prophets. And the prophets have been mistreated and even killed. And at the very end, he decides to send his son. And that is where we are in the, in, as we go through the biblical revelation in the Gospel of Matthew now. God has sent his very son. It's really the ultimate test for Israel. And how are they doing? Well, as we've seen so far, they're not doing so well. Hence the stern rebuke that was in the last passage that Pastor Mike covered last week against those different cities. But in these next verses, as we go into Matthew 11, 25 to 26, there is a startling transition, really. It goes from that message of woe to a message of praise. So in verse 25, we read, um, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that completely unexpected. Why would Jesus praise the Father right after proclaiming judgment about all the things that have gone wrong? Well, as you look at that, who are the wise and understanding that he's talking about? I think it's clear, as we've read through Matthew, they are the religious elite, represented by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, those different people. The very ones who should recognize and accept the Messiah. They are really representatives of the nation of Israel. Yet, as we've seen, and we'll continue to see as we go on in Matthew, they're not doing a good job at all, and they wouldn't repent. And unfortunately, this trajectory continues all the way through them actually crucifying the very Son of God. And as you look at the history beyond that even, there's this continual rebellion from Israel. There's, the temple is destroyed in AD 70, and you might even argue that up to this day, as a whole, the nation of Israel is still not doing what it should be doing, not accepting the Messiah. But it's like Jesus looks through history at the, the failures and rebellion of Israel to this point, and he isn't dismayed. He is fully confident in God's plan and the working out of God's plan. So, the wise and understanding, probably represented by the Pharisees, who are the little children? And Pastor Mike actually went into that several weeks ago, um, talking about the disciples and others who have come to follow Jesus. We're actually going to explore that more in this text today. So let's continue on with the next verse. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's very interesting. It's a peek, really, into this inscrutable relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And it's clear from here that really, in and of ourselves, we can't know God. We can't know Jesus just by ourselves, just by just kind of coming up with our own ideas about God. But now, God is actually revealing himself through the Son. He's done it through biblical revelation. And now, in an amazing way, we actually get to see God in the flesh, how he would actually interact with people. It's an amazing thing. The, the Greek word to know here is epigin osoko. I knew I was going to mask that. 
um, which means thoroughly acquainted with. It's a deep knowledge, not just a surface knowledge. It's amazing. But it is a bit puzzling, too, as you look at this verse. It says, anyone, no one knows the Son, um, knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the question is, who does Jesus choose? Who can come? Well, we're going to look at that. And this is where this unique, dramatic moment occurs. Jesus, as we've read through Matthew, has been speaking to the disciples, and he's been teaching the people, and we've got to listen in on that. He, last week, very uniquely kind of proclaimed this judgment to these cities out loud. He's just spoken to the Father in prayer, and now he does something, and he breaks the fourth wall. He basically turns to everyone listening, and including us, and in doing that, he really flings wide open the gates of heaven. He starts by saying, come to me. Israel was supposed to have offered this invitation to the Gentiles throughout its history, but they didn't do that, did they? But Jesus makes it crystal clear. He calls to everyone listening, come to me. And this call to come has echoed throughout history, through the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, into the Dark Ages when the Vikings were trying to stamp out Christianity in, in Europe, the medieval period, into the age of the uh, Renaissance and the Reformation, the new imperialism, the age of exploration, the First and Second World Wars, the Cold War, the rise of secular humanism, what we call post-Christian Western civilization. To this very day, this call has resonated throughout human history. It's resonated through the history of all the nations of the world, Russia and the UK and America and Brazil and Iran and Senegal and China and the Ukraine. All these nations, every single nation of the world, this call to come has resounded. And it's not a call to come to a church or a denomination or a code of ethics or a, a great teacher or a way of life or a creed. It's a call to come to Christ himself. He is the essence of Christianity, right? A relationship with Christ himself. And Jesus has already started this call, as we've seen through the disciples, when he said, come follow me, and they followed him. But who else is he calling? Can I come? Can you come? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, or who, uh, as a translation say, who are weary and burdened. So here's the answer to who can come. Those who recognize that they labor and are heavy laden, and are weary and burdened, who've been working hard but getting nowhere. I'm not talking about trying working hard at uh, running a business or raising kids or um, trying to get good grades or trying to learn to play piano or something like that. It's a different kind of laboring. It's a laboring of trying to attain a moral standard that is just too high, that is always out of reach. In this context of this passage, the Jews knew what he was talking about. They would, uh, they would have thought of the law and the burden of trying to follow the law and also the, how the Pharisees were just piling on all these extra laws on top of it. It was becoming a huge burden. It was hard enough by itself, but um, they had just gone overboard, the Pharisees had. In fact, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for this, as we'll see in a, few, um, in a few chapters of Matthew. This is one of the things he says about the Pharisees. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
That word burden there is the same root word as the word in the text we're looking at today. The burden that those who labor and are burdened. The Pharisees were experts at burdening people. But what about us here, us non-Jews, the rest of the world, right? Are we burdened too? Well, definitely, we as humans are always trying to figure out, find happiness, find our identity, find the meaning in life, laboring after those things and burdened by them. But that's not really the focus right here. The focus, again, is this burden of trying to reach this unattainable standard of righteousness. It's a call Jesus is giving to those who are aware that they fall short, who realize they're in desperate need of help. They need help to live life as they ought to live it. Those who understand that they don't have the righteousness in and of themselves. The call to come then is restricted. In a sense, it's restricted to those who say, I need help. I've blown it. I can't do it. I don't want to be like I've been. I've set God aside and I've tried to run my own life. I wonder if that describes any of us here. You know, little children aren't afraid to express their needs. I know my grandkids aren't. Once they learned how to say Papa, it was Papa, can you play? Papa, can you read this? Papa, can you? And it was great. I loved it. But they just, they, they will express their needs knowing that the person they're talking to is going to respond to that. So how do we come as little children? As Jesus says, come as the little children, how do we come? Well, as I look at Scripture, there are three different things that stood out to me uh, um, as how we can come to Jesus, right? The first is we come in repentance. Matthew 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repentance means that you basically are turning your direction, right? You've looked at the past and you've thought, You know what? I have blown it. I've sinned. I want a new start. I need to turn and I want to follow Jesus. I want to ask for forgiveness and have my sins forgiven and now take a new direction. We also come in faith. Acts 16, 31 said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And coming in faith as a little child doesn't mean that you've got it all figured out, right? It just means that you are simply saying, God, I don't understand it all, but I believe you. When you say that Jesus came and died for me on the cross, that he rose again, that he has forgiven my sins as I ask him to, that is the kind of faith that the Father is looking for. Simple faith that just says, I believe you, God, for what you've said. And then we come in submission. What I mean by that is this, in Romans 10, 9, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Basically, you're saying, I'm not just trying to get right with God so I can go to heaven. I am saying, Lord Jesus, I want you to take the throne of my life. I want you to be the captain of my ship. I really want you in control. So he says, come to me, come into relationship with me. The Bible calls that amazing process eternal life. It starts when you receive Christ and it goes on all the way into the future. There's a beautiful picture in Isaiah 42 that is echoed in Matthew 12, 20 that we're going to see coming up here very soon um, where um, it says about Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In another version it says a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And I have many times thought of myself as a smoldering wick. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You're just not doing so well. I'm so grateful that Jesus doesn't come and go like that, right? He fans us back into flame. So, so Jesus says, come to me. 
Who can come? Well, the rich, the poor, the atheist, the Islamic person, the guilt-ridden, the abused, those struggling with their identity, the angry, the despairing, the disappointed, those who sit in church Sunday after Sunday and still feel like they're on the outside looking in. He says, come to me, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Aren't you so glad that the call to come went out beyond Israel and it goes all the way to us here today? So Jesus isn't far away with his arms folded, eternally looking disappointed at us and frowning. He's at the very doorway of our hearts. Kathy and I, many years ago, got to go to St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and we saw this painting there. It's called The Light of the World by William Holman Hunt. It's a little bit hard to see from where you're standing, but Jesus is there standing at a, a door. It's a picture of Revelations 3.20, where it says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will go in and eat with him and he with me. And it's hard to see again, but if, if you look closely at the painting, it's very interesting. The door is really overgrown, and there is no handle on the outside of the door, with the implication being it can only be opened from the inside. And Jesus is there knocking at the door. So he is for us. He is poised, ready to come in. And he says, behold, look, I'm asking you to come to me, as he expresses in these verses. It's such a clear picture of God's heart for us. If you've ever wondered or struggled about how God sees you, look no further. Look at Christ's compassion. Jesus is compelled by his nature to move towards sinners. We've seen that in Matthew, and it's true in our own lives too. He doesn't hold us at arm's length with a handkerchief over his nose, spraying us with Lysol. He doesn't say, get your act cleaned up first. If you want to come, if you long to come, you can come. This is great news. He continues on. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, what kind of rest is he talking about? Is it like lying in a hammock on a desert island kind of rest? I don't think so. Like we've already seen, one of the things that the Pharisees did was adding rules onto the law, especially with the Sabbath. There were so many rules about what you could not do on the Sabbath. In the next chapter, chapter 12, um, Matthew explores that a little bit more as, as the disciples are picking grain in the fields on the Sabbath, and Jesus actually heals on the Sabbath. And the, the point of that is that the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing for the Jews, but the Pharisees had made it a heavy burden. It's really quite incredible. They had turned something that was supposed to be a rest and made it into such an incredible burden. But the Sabbath actually is a picture of something even better than one day a week rest. If you read um, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, and I'm sorry we don't have time to go into that this morning, but it talks about a Sabbath rest, and it's a picture of the relationship that we get to have with God as we accept Jesus, we enter into that Sabbath rest, and that rest continues throughout all our lives and into eternity. So rest that Jesus is talking about definitely means salvation, entering into that relationship with him, and his righteousness is applied to us um, we have a relationship with God now that is not performance-based anymore. There's no more striving for this impossible goal. It's a promise of eternal rest. But I don't believe that's all that Jesus is saying right here, that it's just for the future. So no, I believe that no matter what the day may bring now for us, we can have rest by coming to him. 
Christ's call is a call to ongoing spiritual and emotional rest. We are adopted into his family. We aren't on our own anymore. And when we come like little children, we get the deep down soul rest of knowing that we have a daddy who is watching over us and has our lives in his hands. In 2006, Kathy and I and our four kids um, went as missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators to Dakar, Senegal. We left the little sleepy town of McMinnville, Oregon, population about 24,000 out in the country there, and came to Dakar, population three point something million, um, all squeezed onto this little peninsula on the west coast of Africa. And I remember as we were driving from the airport to our home, I remember thinking, I don't think I can raise my family here. As we looked around, it looked like a war zone to us because the buildings were in such bad repair. Um, They'd had an unfortunate um, garbage strike for weeks, so there was piles of garbage everywhere. And uh, traffic was incredible. There's a little picture of that on the side there. When we got to the place we were going to be staying, um, it was such a shock because we found we were the only Western people in our neighborhood. Not a huge surprise, but it was just very isolating. We were very hot. It was extremely hot. We were getting rolling 12-hour power cuts off and on, and we were a bit sick. And I remember going with Ethan to the little neighborhood bakery to get bread, and there was pictures of Osama bin Laden all over the walls there. And I remember feeling very unsafe at that point. And um, I was really struggling. And I remember many days, um, I would kind of withdraw into myself, and I would kind of close my eyes when I was by myself, and I would picture myself somewhere else. It was always the Oregon coast, sitting on a piece of driftwood, looking out over the misty ocean, and uh, with the cry of gulls and the, you know, the waves and everything like that. And I would just wish I was there. And I remember one day, it really shocked me. I was by myself, and I said out loud, it just came out spontaneously, I hate this place. And it shocked me to hear it, say, hear it coming out of my own mouth, right? With my own ears. I was like, wow, is it really that bad? And really, that's where God met me at that point. I had just been trying to escape, basically, my circumstances by picturing myself somewhere else. And he led me back to his word and his promises and the rest that I could find from trusting his promises and the rest I had in Christ, and it made such a difference to me. And it wasn't immediate, but it did change. And I remember many times over the years thinking, wow, I actually like living here. And I could never have said that when I first got there. It was really a a huge blessing. You see, our our attempts at finding rest by ourselves just always ends up as escapism. When we're stressed, what do people do when you're stressed, right? I mean, you might eat bowls of ice cream, you might binge watch junk entertainment, you might go to alcohol or some other thing to try and appease that, but it never works. It's only temporary. When we come to Jesus, he gives us true rest, permanent rest. But here's another one of those puzzling paradoxes that we find in God's upside-down kingdom. How does Christ give us rest? He says, take my yoke upon you. And you say, wait a minute, how can taking on a yoke bring rest, right? Isn't a yoke designed for work? We don't want to be yoked, we want freedom. And that kind of depends on your definition of freedom. Those of you who know me well know I'm a bit geeky about strategy board games. I really enjoy them, the ones that take like two or three hours to play, not just the little simple ones. And um, here's one of them. This one is called Merchants and Marauders, and it's a, basically a map of the Caribbean, and you're a captain of a ship, and on your turn, you can basically do pretty much whatever you like. You can go and you can pick up cargo and try and buy low and sell high. You can um, follow rumors and try and solve the puzzles. You can 
sail across and try and avoid pirates. You can even become a pirate if you really want to. You can upgrade your ship. You can do all these things. It seems like you've got a lot of freedom in that game. But the thing that makes the game work is this. That is the rule book for Merchants and Marauders, right? If you come to play that with me, I want you to know this well, because the way the game works, the, what makes it fun is that the rules have been designed so perfectly that in the freedoms of the game, there's these restrictions that make it so it all works. And if you come and you just say, throw out the rule book, I'm just going to play it my way, it's going to be complete chaos and no one's going to have fun whatsoever, right? So freedom... Actual freedom is living within the good boundaries that God has set for us. That's what the yoke represents. And that's where, paradoxically, we can thrive. There is some discussion, as I was studying this, of what type of yoke does it mean? Is it a single-person yoke where you're holding it on your shoulders? Or is it a double yoke like for oxen? The Greek word zygos means linked together. And in the Old Testament, it definitely talks about oxen being yoked together and doing work but it also is used metaphorically as a, a picture of a burden that can be put on people's shoulders, like when the Babylonians came and laid burdens on the Israelites. It's used in that term too. In the New Testament, uh, Paul uses this word to talk about believers and unbelievers being unequally yoked together. Also at this time, to come under the teaching of a rabbi, was, um, it was called to come under the yoke of the rabbi's teaching. And we definitely see that with the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus has teaching that people are supposed to come under. So I really encourage you to study it for yourself. For me, I lean towards the double yoke oxen. I think that's a kind of a better picture of what Christ is saying here. But it doesn't really matter because the point is it's Jesus' yoke for us. It's specially designed for us. So how can putting on this yoke bring rest? Well, the fact is, um, the interesting thing is, Without the yoke of Jesus, we are not at rest by enough ourselves, right? We actually have a yoke already. We're not just free and putting on a yoke. We're taking off an old yoke and putting on a new oak. yoke. Sorry. Our freedom that we think we have leads to bad habits, and bad habits lead to addictions, and addictions definitely lay you in bondage, right? That's, there's no way that that is freedom. For the Jews at that time, the yoke of the the law and the Pharisees that they were putting on brought them at best legalism and at the very worst, just despair. The Pharisees kept on piling on burdens, like I said. But in the upside-down kingdom, Christ's yoke brings freedom. It's not the law trying to live life by our own rules or just the, the, the law in Scripture, but following Jesus. It's not exchanging one set of rules for another set of rules. It's following Jesus as our Lord and entering into relationship with him. So Jesus didn't come just to be a rabbi, another good teacher, but he came to be our Savior and our Lord. So the call to take his yoke is a call to submission to his lordship, giving him the throne of our lives, like I said earlier. He goes on and he says, whoops, there we go. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The call to come under Jesus' teaching and direction is a call to discipleship. When we enter into relationship with Jesus, he is always with us. He's guiding us. He's empowering us. You know, the terms abiding in Christ and walking in the Spirit are all basically terms for the same thing. It's this idea of day by day, moment by moment, being discipled by Christ. 
So there's clearly a one-time coming to Jesus that he calls to for salvation, but there's also a daily coming, a moment-by-moment coming to Jesus. We learn from him. We watch him. We listen to what he says. We're filled with his spirit, and we follow him. We follow the ways of the upside-down kingdom, as we've seen um, through Matthew so far. And instead of waking in the morning then and looking at all that's going on in the world and in our own lives and feeling like it's all up to us to solve those problems, what a heavy burden. We can wake in the morning and we can say, Lord, I'm coming to you. I'm going to take your yoke on, on me. I'm going to trust you for the agenda of my day. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to gain instruction from you. I'm going to be led by your spirit. And we can trust that he will direct the circumstances of our day, both for our good and for his glory. And that is true rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Other translations say meek and humble. So after Jesus' judgment of the Jewish cities that we saw last week, this is a bit unexpected as well. Right? It's not how really we're expecting Jesus to portray himself. As he opens up his heart and shows us how he feels about us, he uses these words. The word meek or gentle is the Greek word praus. It's a word that's used in Matthew 5, 5 in the Beatitudes when it says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's also used of Jesus when the scripture is quoted when he enters Jerusalem before he is crucified. Behold, your king is coming gentle and riding on a donkey. That's the same word used there. So gentleness, you may have heard this, is power under control. And there's a compound word in English that we've used over the years um, that reflects that. It's the word gentleman. This is a a series of articles and pictures of my great-great-grandfather, George Tolman Rawls. He was a gentleman. He was a sea captain in the 1800s, and he would take groups of emigrants from England to New Zealand in a ship called the City of Auckland. And he was just absolutely loved by the passengers. Um, He had to take on the role of doctor and delivered over 40 children on those long three-month voyages, including three of his own. I think of his wife. She's the unsung hero in this, I think. Um, But on the last voyage of the City of Auckland, they were getting close to New Zealand and um, went into a fog bank and ran aground. And the ship was stuck. And there was a panic among the 250-odd emigrants there. And the men rushed forward. And my great-great-grandfather, Captain Rolls, stood over the boats with a loaded revolver. And he said, "Um, the first person who approaches, I will shoot. This is going to be women and children first. And that's how it took place. The women and children were able to get off, and then the men could get off. So I like that picture, because here's this gentle man who can deliver babies and be well-loved by everybody. But he definitely had the power but he used the power to protect the weak, those who didn't have it. Jesus definitely exhibits that same power under control, but infinitely more than my great-great-grandfather, right? He is infinitely power and powerful and treats us so gently. He is a true gentleman. If you remember the, the picture of the smoldering wick, right? That's how he treats us. He fans us back into flame. The word lowly in Greek, tapinos, means humble of position, And we see in Philippians 3, a passage I'm pretty sure you're familiar with, where Jesus is described as making himself nothing, taking on the the form of a servant. He leaves his position in heaven, comes down to earth at our level, right? 
That's the idea of lowly. It means basically he became accessible to us. That is how he's portraying himself, absolutely access- accessible to us. It, so remember, gentleness and gentle and lowly doesn't mean wishy-washy in any way. It's just the posture that Jesus has as he approaches us. He is kindness and compassion in the flesh. He walked on this earth as a man. He knows all about our frailties. He understands them perfectly. And in this self-description that he gives of himself, we see Christ's heart for us as he perfectly loves us, perfectly understands us, knows us by name, has numbered the hairs on our head. Surely we can trust such a great Savior with the yoke that he puts on us. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Sorry, I should have said that one. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus wants to give us the gift of rest. He says this again, right? This is the second time in the verse he says this because he really wants us to get it. So whatever your previous legalistic notions were of what it means to be a Christian, the call to come, follow Jesus, is a call to rest for your soul. No matter what the circumstances swirling around you, no matter what the crazy times are in which we live. And it also is a promise of eternal rest in heaven. Just think about that. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So taking Christ's yoke is not the absence of work, remember, but it's perfectly fulfilling, inspiring, meaningful labor that is tailor-made for us. You know, a yoke is carved to fit perfectly, right? It's, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, right? I'm six foot two and I have size 12 shoes. When I go to buy socks, my only options are to buy a packet of socks that are from size six, to 12. Somebody's going to be disappointed in that, right? And sometimes it's me with my toes curled under, right? It's the same in airline seats when you're six foot two as well. But Jesus' call to discipleship is not a one-size-fits-all discipleship, right? It is perfectly fit for us. The word easy here, um, chestos, means fit in the sense that it's just perfect, right? It means kind or pleasant, the bottom line is it's appropriate for us, for where we are in this discipleship program. So the yoke is light in that sense that it is manageable for us. It's not harsh or bitter. So he takes care of all the old things that burdened us under the old yoke. And by his grace and by his spirit, he gives us the yoke that is perfect for us and enables, it, um, enables us to carry it. If you like the picture of the two oxen together, he is the strong ox training the weak one. He does the heavy lifting, and we walk with him. Our part is just to follow him. What a wonderful Savior we have. In conclusion, then, Jesus calls us to come and find true rest. In these verses, Jesus reveals the heart of the Father for us, and truly we understand God's heart for us better from what Jesus says here. This is a quote that I really like from an English Baptist pastor, James Smith. He wrote it in 1859 about this passage of Scripture. He says, we not only know Christ, but we need him. And the longer we live, the more we need him. We need his blood to cleanse us, his righteousness to clothe us, and his spirit to sanctify us. We need Christ daily, hourly. As we need Christ, so we come to Christ, not once for all, but we continue to come. We must come to him in every trial, in every trouble, in every conflict, to unburden our minds, to find rest for our souls. We come to him for wisdom, for strength, for holiness. Much of true religious practice consists of coming daily and hourly to Jesus. So, 
The question remains, will you come? Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, come to him. Come to him today in repentance and faith and submission. You'll find him with his arms outstretched, just like on the cross, his arms were outstretched. He's promised to forgive you and cleanse you and never leave you or forsake you. If you would like to do that and you need help doing that, please talk to one of the staff after the service or maybe the person who brought you to church today. But if you're already a follower of Jesus, the call to come is still there. The call to come every day intentionally to Jesus, moment by moment. The daily Christian life is not a passive one, right? It's an active one. Fear versus faith and lies versus truth and temptation versus submission. We need to come to him, put on his yoke, again in repentance and faith and submission each day, walking with him, learning from him, resting in him from the first thing in the morning to when we go to bed at night. This is for you, Eric. I'm like a car with bad alignment. And if I'm not watching what I'm doing, I'm drifting off to one side constantly, right? And to use the correct metaphor from this, um, this passage, I'm like a horse that can't do a straight line. I need the yoke of my strong, gentle Savior, him walking with me. He's going to keep me going so at the end of the day I can look back and see a straight line behind me. Almost the very last verses in the Bible, in Revelation, says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So come to Jesus, all you who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage where you turn and you call basically the world, those who are weary and burdened, to come to you. You are the solution to our need. You are the only one who can bring true rest. And as we enter into that relationship with you, thank you that you design a discipleship program for us that is perfect. For our needs, for our circumstances, for our our life, Lord, you know all that goes on, you know our habits, you know our hang-ups, you know our family situation, our financial situation, you know all those things. And you still call us to come and you say that you will be the one who will give us rest because you are gentle and lowly. You have made yourself low. You're accessible to us. Thank you so much for this beautiful picture of your very heart. And I just pray for the people here this morning, Lord, those coming with Whatever there are in life, those who have never come to you, those who need to renew their commitment to come to you, Lord, I just pray for each one that this message would touch their hearts in the way that you want them to. Thank you again for your word and for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.